In the year 1903, in Toronto, Canada, a pair of twins were born to an affluent family, the Mullocks. They were named Eve and Lilith. In almost every respect, these twins appeared to be like any other babies. However, after several strange feeding sessions with the mother, a few notable differences were found. One child, Eve, was a particularly voracious eater. Her mother would be left exhausted after every feeding, and would need to feed the other baby, Lilith, first to ensure she'd be fed at all. Strangely, as well as her insatiable appetite, Eve would never spit up. The process is quite common for babies, a small amount of vomit here and there, typically after feeding. But despite gorging at every opportunity, she had never let a drop spill from her lips. The behavior of the twins had begun to grow more and more concerning. As Lilith started to develop an emaciated appearance, she would sway when sitting still, struggling to keep her balance. Lilith also would become very fussy when it came to feeding time. She wouldn't eat regularly, which concerned the parents, who attributed it to her sister's gluttony. As time went on, they hired a live-in wet nurse to help assist with Eve's hunger. She had begun to grow in size, both in girth and height, and her mother could hardly keep up. Meanwhile, Lilith's emaciation would not be rectified through normal means. The parents had decided it was reasonable to keep regular appointments with a doctor. The doctor had found small peculiarities in both children. Eve was noticeably large for her age, appearing to be the size of a generously overweight toddler at the age of two months. The doctor assured the parents that there was little concern to be had there, as she probably just needed to be weaned off her excessive eating habits. Lilith was excessively fragile, as if growing thinner with every passing day. The doctor informed them that this kind of thing wasn't altogether totally uncommon in the womb. But there's no reason that kind of disproportionate nutrition should be happening after birth. Especially with both children having the same access to food. Lilith also had a peculiar smell, unlike any baby should possess. She always carried a faint aroma of ethyl alcohol. At the doctor's advice, the parents attempted to feed Eve less frequently, and in less abundance. The result was an unyielding cacophony of protest from the child. Once she was hungry, if she was cut off before she'd had more than four average babies share, she threw excessive tantrums. She would howl and wail for hours on end, only pausing briefly to catch her breath. The parents kept up with it as best they could, but in many circumstances it grew too agonizing to bear, and they would give in, feeding the child to her contentment. At six months, Eve began to walk. It wasn't uncommon in their family for children to walk before their first birthday, but six months was record-breaking for them. She wouldn't spend much time on her feet, but her ability to move was astonishing. It was also peculiar that she'd already fully formed all of her baby teeth, which appeared to be abnormally large and dark. Poor Lilith, on the other hand, would never take a step in her life. She was eternally bed-bound, lacking even the basic strength to crawl. Her pathetic frame looked like she would simply pass away at any second. When she would attempt to cry, Little more than raspy screeches would leave her lips, associated with that same pungent scent of ethanol. Late in the evening, during one of the parents' more stoic attempts at staving off Eve's appetite, something peculiar occurred. 
she stopped screaming. Both parents, delighted with the turn of events, were happily able to return to sleep. The next morning, when they entered the nursery where both babies slept, they found something terrifying. To this day, details are debated, but a few facts and issues seem substantiated. The air was thin, hard to breathe, and smelled of a combination of alcohol and advanced decomposition. Baby Lilith was still in her crib, silent as a church mouse. Eve was on the floor, hunched over the eviscerated corpse of the wet nurse. Some accounts claim that Eve had been eating the flesh of the wet nurse. But the family has vehemently denied those claims. Other accounts claim that the wet nurse stunk of liquor when she was found, giving way that she may have been drinking that night and was hiding her habit from the family. The Mullocks were staunch supporters of the temperance movement in Toronto. According to the Mullocks' account, someone had snuck into the house and tortured and disfigured the wet nurse before leaving. Strangely, nothing of value was reported to have been taken, and no sign of a break-in was evident. Details of the event of the wet nurse's demise eventually found their way into the eyes of the public. Printed in one of the city's most reputable newspapers, the story of the two infants began to gain notoriety. Eve and Lilith had been given the names Butter and Scotch, respectively. The negative press affected the patriarch Stuart Mullock quite significantly in his business dealings. It also drastically harmed the family's livelihood up until the night of the Great Toronto Fire. On the evening of April 19, 1904, the twins were left with a relative of the family, Joseph, who owned a wholesale store in the northwest corner of Bay and Wellington. At 8.04 p.m., the first sightings of the Great Fire of Toronto were reported. A large chunk of the Bay Street corridor was lost in the flames, including the wholesale store the twins were in with their uncle. No one really knows the cause of the fire. Records show that there was no official victims claimed, as most of the building were empty shops or business buildings. But unidentified remains were found in the basement of Joseph's wholesale building, which is also believed to have been the origin point of the fire from an upstairs oven. The remains appeared to be that of an adult male, presumed to have been Joseph. But no skull was found, so no dental records could be corroborated. All the flesh was stripped from the bones. Claims supported by the family are that he was consumed by the fire, and the skull obliterated by falling rubble. But according to the volunteer firefighters, who helped clear the ruins... There was no indication the fire had spread to the basement in any capacity that could have cleaned the flesh off a human corpse. Neither Eve nor Lilith were found. They were assumed to have died, the remains lost in the rubble, unrecognized and unclaimed during the cleanup of the fire's aftermath. Rumors circulate that in the early summer night, you may smell smoke if you walk down Bay Street. Sometimes... People swear that they hear the howls of a hungry baby, accompanied by the acrid scent of alcohol permeating the air.
All I can do now is distract myself through writing. I don't know if waiting it out is my only option, or if I should do something drastic. With every second that passes, I can't help but think that this bus will be my tomb either way. I don't feel that I'm pressed for time. In fact, it feels oddly soothing. I'll write a bit of a backstory for perspective. Like many other city commuters, waiting for the bus was a fairly common occurrence to me. The trains didn't run early in the morning when I went to work. Often enough, I checked the app, which said the same thing as the bus stop schedule. The bus would be arriving imminently, one to two minutes. One minute would pass, then two, then three. It's not infrequent that the city buses are late, with no real explanation as to why. What's rare, however, is when they simply don't arrive at all. I'd check my app over and over again, only to find that allegedly the bus had come and gone. News to me, and the other two people that were waiting. As the roads were quiet and there's no way we could have missed it. I jokingly refer to the buses as Eldridge buses. Little did I truly know. Although not a totally common occurrence, it wasn't anything I'd ever give a second thought to, beyond fuming about being late. Typically, I'd brush it off with the same crap transit service I grew up with in Toronto. At worst, I'd cuss and see the same displeasure reflected back at me in the faces of the other impatient commuters, as they would, too, check their phones in vain. I had no cause to care beyond my wasted time. That is, until I ended up seeing what happened to those missing buses. Today, I got on the bus as normal, around 5 a.m. on a Sunday. It was that late point in summer, when the days are hot and humid, but the early hours of the morning are cool. There tends to be quite a bit of fog. You can see the condensation has formed on the windows of quiet cars and dark storefronts. As the bus rolled up, I saw the yellowish-white glow of the fluorescent lights through the moisture-laden windows, piercing the darkness like a dull knife. The driver had that vacant, end-of-the-shift look on his face probably wouldn't have noticed whether or not anyone who even got on paid their fare. As I stepped up to board, the only other person waiting with me shoved past rudely, desperate for a seat, likely to pass out and miss their stop. I didn't think too much of it. It was too early to really kick up a stink anyway. Strangely, the bus was far less occupied than usual. In fact, there was only one other passenger on it. As the trains don't operate at this time, it's rare that I would see an open seat, let alone snag one. I didn't really care much about the why. I was just happy to get a rare, coveted seat from my as-of-yet caffeinated arse. I sat near the back, so as to keep way clear from new people coming on. The bus trotted along as usual through the dark August morning. I tried to look out the window, as I tend to get motion sickness easily. But unfortunately, due to the condensation, I was out of luck. I dared to look down at my phone, only to realize the commute that should have taken 20 minutes had been going for almost 30. Frustrated, I checked the app to see the expected time of arrival at my stop. Three minutes. Not much I could have done other than to stew in my anger. Five minutes later, I checked once more. Three minutes, again. Absolutely furious at this point, I stood up to gripe at the driver. I realized the bus wasn't moving at all. We weren't stopped at a light so far as I could tell, but it felt like the bus's wheels were in motion. The engine was working hard, as if desperately trying to accelerate. 
but we were definitely not moving. I looked down at the app on my phone. Zero minutes. Then it started to display the time for the next bus, as if we glided straight through the stop. I ran up to the front of the bus to get the driver to let me off immediately, but stopped as I noticed something incredibly peculiar. I couldn't see a single thing through the front window. I hadn't paid any attention to the front windows until then, but there's no way in hell the driver could see through all that thick, creamy mist, and yet the engine was still roaring. As I turned to the driver, I noticed he was unconscious, foot off the pedal. I tried to shake him awake, but he wouldn't rouse. He was stiff and cold. If it weren't for the wisps of breath I saw emerging from his slacked mouth, I'd have been convinced he was dead. I turned around to voice my concerns to the other two passengers, but saw they were out cold too. All thoughts of getting to work on time had completely gone out the window. Fumbling for my phone, I tried to make a call. Someone. Anyone. As I tried to call my wife's number, the call failed. No service. Out of options but struggling in futility, I tried calling again. No luck. As I stood there attempting to think of what to do next, I pondered. Why have I not tried to leave the bus? I suppose it was because... I was a little bit scared. There was a haunting nag of uncertainty in the back of my mind. A fear of dealing with the unknown, all alone. Pressing my palm against the window of the bus door, it was cool. Far too cold to have matched the ambient temperature when I first left my home. By now, it was almost 6.30am. If anything, it should be warming up outside. I forced the front folding door open, only to be overwhelmed with a vile, acrid scent. The viscous, almost gelatinous fog started to pour in. Desperately, I slammed the door closed as quickly as I could, gagging and choking on the permeating air. I raced back to my previous seat, put my head in my hands. What the hell do I do now? I tried to reason with myself that this was some kind of delusion, a dream. But the stinging feeling in my sinuses from the fog reassured me that I was very much awake, although I definitely was starting to feel drowsy, more so than normal during my early commute. I knew I had to fight the urge to sleep. I was the only one on the bus who somehow managed to maintain consciousness. Every time my eyelids felt too heavy to bear, and I'd almost lose the fight against unconsciousness, I'd hear the faintest whisper come from all around me. It had spooked me halfway back to my attention. As my eyelids felt heavier and heavier, the whispers losing their shock value, I thought for sure I was done resisting. Then I heard a huge thump. The bus rocked back and forth, against the window, next to the rude dude who shoved me earlier. I saw there was damage to the glass from a significant impact, a web-like ripple, but strangely obscured. Upon further inspection, there was some kind of fluid or slime on the exterior of the glass. As I slowly moved closer to examine it, another massive thump sent me reeling backwards. Whatever it was, it hit like a baseball bat or golf club. Didn't look like anything I knew, though. It looked like a fat, flattened hose. I only saw it for a second, 
but it was enough to know there was something out there. Whatever the hell it was, it was trying to get to the rude guy. I worked up my courage, ran up, grabbed him, dragged him to the back. No more thumps so far. I decided to do the same with all the other occupants. The back area was much harder to see into from the outside, as the windows are much smaller. Hopefully whatever was out there would simply give up. I checked my watch. It was 7.30 at this point. No thumps, since I dragged everyone to the back. I decided to look around, maybe see if I could make out anything else in the fog. I noticed something dark against the window on the left-hand side. Hesitant to approach the window too closely, I tried to study it from afar. It looked like a big mouth, like a sucker-mouth catfish, except this had several rows of teeth and a massive body, more like an overgrown lamprey, as if they weren't creepy enough at their normal size. Wondering what the hell to do now, not wanting to attract any more attention to the bus, I remembered my notepad in my bag. I pulled it out, began to write all of this down to help distract myself and to stay calm. I watched the mysterious leech for a while. Between thinking of all the details to add to my writings, I've lost track of time. I still feel torn between feeling like I'm going to pass out and being too jacked up on pure terror to sit. I looked again into its maw. It was almost hypnotic. The rows of teeth were orchestrated very strangely, almost like a psychedelic spiral, but dark and macabre. Began difficult to look away. Another huge crash interrupted my gaze into that abyss. Something huge collided with the bus, rocking it back and forth, worse than previous thumps. Something big, bigger than the lamprey, slammed right on top of it and snatched it away. I couldn't see at all what it was but all that was left behind was a smear of whatever juices ran through the lamprey's body and another huge web-like crack in the glass only this one looked more severe it wasn't until I smelled that sour stinging scent again that I took notice the fog was seeping in through the cracks it was only a matter of time before the bus would be filled I had no idea what I could use to block it I rifled through my backpack and the belongings of my unconscious busmates with very little luck. The driver had some cheap chewing gum in his rear pocket. Better than nothing. I put every piece in my mouth, started to hastily chew. I then attempted to smear the sticky gob over as much of the cracks as I could. I'm now caught up to the present moment in my writing. The whispers have come back. They make it hard to write. I wish I could understand what they were saying. By now, I can tell that it's brighter outside the bus. The fog has a gooey, off-white appearance, almost a little purple. I had even noticed at what point the bus engine had stopped, but the lights inside are off now. I just looked up from my writing, only for a second. What I saw briefly paralyzed me. There are shadows in the fog, all sorts of strange figures ranging in size from the average human to that of an elephant, some of indescribable shapes. Feels like the bus is surrounded by these shadows on all sides. Like a cockroach scurrying for sanctuary. I'm now sitting partially under the seats, 
next to my unconscious companions. To whatever these creatures are, I am little more than a fearful insect hiding for dear life. Everything just got significantly brighter. The bus is jostling. Feels like an earthquake. I see the previous shadowy forms edging away. Out front, a light begins to dim. I had to pause from writing for a few minutes. It was too dark to see my page. We were in the shadow of something massive. But it's past now. The mist has eaten away at the gum-sealed crack. It's making its way in again. I don't know if I hope that someone finds this notepad, or if I'd rather that no one ever know about this hellish dimension I've fallen prey to. I can see the shadows moving again in the distance. Closing in. Moving faster. Whispers are so loud now, like screams, but I still can't understand. I want to understand. I have no hope here. In this place, I'm so lonely, but I don't feel as scared as I did before. If anyone finds my writing, finds himself trapped as I am, don't be scared. It gets easier. I'm going to try to leave through the emergency exit hatch on the roof of the bus. Maybe it will give me a vantage. I need to go out there. I don't know why, but I think that's what the whispers want. I think they're trying to help me. I don't remember why I was afraid anymore. I don't even really remember what fear felt like.